Welcome to today's reading of the Council Bluffs Nonpareil for Friday, January 6th, 2023. I'm your reader, John Kringle, and here's our first story. Maloney's Irish Pub brings tunes and good times to the 100 block. This is from David Goblitz. Maloney's Irish Pub has been a well-known staple of Omaha's bar scene since it opened in 2008, and when former owner Wendy Maloney saw that a space was available across the river along the historic 100 block, she saw an opportunity too good to pass up. I love this building, said Maloney, a Council Bluffs native and Thomas Jefferson graduate. I love the 100 block, and it's so much cooler now than it ever was when I worked here before. Maloney was a bartender at Mike's Place, which was located at 162 West Broadway from 2003 to 2008, saving her tips until she could open her own place, which she ran for 11 years. After selling the Maloney's in Omaha to her friend and bartender, Chris Falkenheiner, she worked for 1% Productions for a couple of years and dabbled in local real estate. When her old stomping grounds became available, she thought maybe it was time to get back into bartending. This is actually where I met Chris Maloney, said. She used to be one of my customers here, and I was going to buy this one. And I kind of mentioned to her, like, hey, would you ever be interested in doing Maloney's in Council Bluff? And so we just ended up doing it together. Falkenhainer, who still owns Maloney's Omaha, was game, and Maloney's Council Bluffs opened in late September. The Omaha location, 1830 North 72nd Street, lacks space for live music, which is one of the reasons the Council Bluffs location appealed to its new owners. We all always wanted 72nd when we worked together to be a band bar, said Falkenhainer, who graduated from Abraham Lincoln High School. We both formerly have a lot of experience. That's where we both grew up, was in live music venues, and it was kind of frustrating point to not be able to have the entertainment that we wanted to, given the, you know, the structural confines of 72nd. She continues that building is not conducive to have live music, Maloney said. Having previously worked at 162 West Broadway, Maloney knew the layout, and she knew she could offer something that Omaha has in abundance, but Council Bluffs is sorely lacking. There isn't any place in Council Bluffs that has a nice stage to see a band, Maloney said. So yeah, that was alluring to me. Also because I already knew that the setup was good for having bands. Maloney's on the 100 block of uh, offers live music Friday and Saturday nights, and they are not particular about what kind of music it is, booking everything from country and metal to hip-hop and punk, and bringing fans of that music to the bar. Our musical groups span all ages, but I'll say that that demographic is just like a working model for us. The layout she knew could offer something that Omaha has in abundance, but Council Bluffs is sorely lacking. There isn't any place in Council Bluffs that has that nice stage to see a band, so yeah, that was alluring. Maloney's on the 100 block offers live music Friday and Saturday nights, and they are not particular about what kind of music it is. Our musical groups span all ages, but I'd like to say the demographic demographic is just like a working class that just wants to get away from the BS for a while, Falkenhainer said. Maloney and Falkenhamer enjoy the rush and excitement that having a live band brings to the bar. We know what our ability is to put on major events functionally, and we try to provide that to people who enjoy it as often as possible, Maloney said. 
I would say that that's our common kind of thing, is that we like the togetherness. We like the exhilaration, the buzz once the door is closed at the end of the night. Yeah, once you pull off a big event, and at the end of the night, it's like, well, the place is still standing. We didn't have any fights. Everybody had a good time, Falkenhamer said. If live music doesn't interest you, Maloney's also hosts trivia night on Wednesdays and karaoke nights on Thursdays, with open mic nights on Sundays. The bar is closed on Mondays and Tuesdays. There's always something to do at Maloney's, Falkenhamer said. There's always something going on. The bar also has a couple of arcade games, a pinball machine, skee-ball, shuffleboard, and darts, but no pool tables. They just invite trouble. The bar features traditional Irish staples on tap, along with some unique pours like Jameson whiskey. They also have six non-alcoholic drinks available and are working on mixed drink recipes for them. Eventually, Maloney's will also serve food, but the kitchen needs a lot of work, Maloney said. In addition to the live music on weekends, Maloney and Falkenhamer are planning a week's worth of festivities leading up to St. Patrick's Day, including an emo night the day after for those who like to steer clear of bars on what is one of the biggest drinking days of the year. It's like a very sad dance party, Maloney said. It's the party after it's after <laughs> it's the after party for all those that don't intend uh, to attend the day of party what we kind of learned as well over the years. Falkenhamer said, there's a lot of people who don't like the hustle and bustle. Maloney's neighbors needn't worry about the expected St. Patrick's Day crowd. The owners are well aware of the location's recent history, and they are ready to breathe new life into the building. Under previous ownership, 162 West Broadway had earned something of a bad reputation over the last 15 years or so with a number of incidents that necessitated multiple calls to Council Bluffs Police, which culminated last year with the building being put up for sale. We knew what this place has been for the last 15 years, and we take a lot of pride in coming here and being a breath of fresh air to the building, Falkenhamer said. We're still a work in progress, but we've come a long way in the couple months that we've been open, Maloney said. Upcoming shows at Maloney's include the country music of the Chris Lee duo on Friday and the Grateful Dead cover band Touch of Grey on Saturday. For more information about Maloney's, visit facebook.com backslash Maloney SCB. Area bands interested in playing at the bar are welcome to send an email to the Maloney bookings at gmail.com. Continuing on, recounts and absentee ballot policies could change in Iowa. Iowa's top election official is proposing a bill aimed at bringing more uniformity to recounts. The proposal comes more than two years after a messy recount for the 2020 Marionette Miller-Meeks-Rita-Hart congressional race, one of the closest House races in the country with a six-vote margin. In the most recent midterm election, a lengthy Davenport House District recount showed an unusual swing in results, and officials braced for a statewide recount after a close state auditor race. A bill isn't yet filled, excuse me, a bill isn't yet filed with the Iowa legislature, but in a news release on Thursday, the Iowa Secretary of State's office said the measure would standardize the recount timeline across Iowa's 99 counties bolster recount boards in larger counties, and require more uniform methods for recounting, reconciling, and reporting ballots. 
The integrity of Iowa's elections is my top priority, and this bill would help ensure we have clean, secure elections and a recount process that is uniform across the state, Secretary of State Paul Pate said in an emailed statement. We have had the opportunity to identify these areas of improvement while observing several large-scale recounts in recent years. The legislation would increase the size of recount boards depending on a county's population. Currently, when a candidate requests a recount, three candidate-picked people make up the board that tallies the ballots. Under the proposed legislation, recount boards in counties with a population of 15 to 49,000 would grow to five members. Counties with a population of more than 50,000 would conduct recounts with seven-member boards. Another change under the bill would make just two of the recount board members candidates pick. The remainder of the board members would be an election poll worker selected by the chief judge of the judicial district balanced by party. Recounts in large counties are difficult for just three people to conduct, Pate said in the emailed statement. I'd like to give the recount board more members so the tallying of votes is more manageable and more efficient. The bill, according to the Secretary of State's office, also makes recount processes more uniform in multi-county races. In the 2020 then-2nd district race, some counties did recounts by hand and some did tallies by machine. The proposed bill seeks to end that practice, the press release states. Another change would require all counties to hold an official canvas of elections on a certain day with a goal of making the recount timeline uniform for each county. In the back-and-forth race for House District 81, covering parts of Davenport, a recount board's result flipped the lead to the Republican in the race. The recount board, made up of three members, sorted through more than 23,000 absentee ballots for more than a week to count ballots cast in the House District 81. It's not yet clear what kind of support the bill will receive in the legislature, but in an interview in late December, House Speaker Pat Grassley said he expected more conversations about ensuring recount uniformity and trust in elections. I think you're going to see the legislature engage with the county level to see why are these things happening, because we want Iowans to have full confidence in the election system, and when they don't see a result until the second week of December on a state legislative race, people kind of think, oh, what's going on there? State Association of County Auditors asked for more time to mail out ballots. The State Association of County Auditors is asking Iowa lawmakers to lengthen the window for early and by-mail voting after running the first general election with a shortened 20-day window. A series of two legislative proposals in 2017 and 2021 cut the number of days Iowans could vote early from 40 days before an election to 20 days. Under the new law, auditors also can only mail out ballots beginning at 20 days. Leaders of the Iowa State Assembly of County Auditors say the best outcome would be for lawmakers to restore the 40-day early voting window. But the association is proposing a less strident solution to crunched by mail balloting they hope will garner support. Allowing county auditors to mail ballots five days before in-person voting begins Ringgold County Auditor and Association President Amanda Waskey said could cut down on voter confusion. 
She sent ballots to an Iowa couple wintering in Arizona, and when they reported they didn't receive them, Wasky said, there wasn't time to send another ballot by Election Day, another 2021 change in Iowa law. I didn't have enough time to turn around and mail them a new one, Wasky said. They would have received it if I had that extra few days. All 99 county auditors have a vote on the association's legislative priorities for the year, and more than 70% of county auditors are Republicans, according to a review of the association's website. The association opposed the past legislation shortening the window of early voting and has made returning to the 40-day window a priority each year, said past President Jennifer Garms, auditor of Clayton County. Appetite for returning to a 40-day window among Republican legislative leaders is likely very low. Senator Jack Whitver said of election laws, I don't envision a lot of drastic changes at this point going forward. Iowa is among 14 states that mail out ballots fewer than 30 days before an election, according to the National Conference of State Legislatures. Just Colorado and Washington State have a shorter period, sending ballots at 18 days. Kansas also sends ballots out at 20 days ahead of an election. Among states that offer early in-person voting, early voting periods range from 3 days to 46. The average is 23. I think 20 days is a very, very reasonable period for people to vote early, Whitfer said, and it's right in the middle of all the 50 states. There's a lot of liberal states out there that are a lot higher. Continuing on with more news. What can the U.S. House do without a speaker? Not much. Until a speaker is elected, University of Iowa graduate presides over the House. This comes from Tom Barton with the Gazette and Des Moines Bureau. And he begins, frustration mounted after a third vote of third day of voting failed to break a stalemate as of Thursday evening between GOP factions in the U.S. House over the election of Kevin McCarthy as House Speaker. Iowa's U.S. House members continued to back McCarthy in a chamber that remained paralyzed, unable to elect a leader, and officially seat its members as a group of 20 hardline anti-establishment Republicans dig in against McCarthy's bid for speaker despite concessions from the California Republican. Democrats, meanwhile, seemed content to let Republicans twist in the wind. Former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Democrat from California, told reporters there was no chance that Democrats will strike a deal to provide the votes to elect McCarthy, the Washington Post reported. The last time electing a House Speaker went 10 rounds or more was in 1859, which took 44 ballots over two months. Until a Speaker is elected, lawmakers cannot be sworn in and new Congress officially seated. Meaning until someone wins the gavel, House lawmakers remain members-elect who are able to occupy their offices and field calls from constituents, but cannot adopt rules, set up committees, vote on bills, attend high-level security briefings, or help constituents navigate federal bureaucracy, bureaucracy until a speaker is chosen. Washington is broken. I came to Congress to fight the chaos and dysfunction in D.C., and I'm just as frustrated as Iowans are by the current stalemate, Iowa Republican U.S. Representative Ashley Hinson of Marion said in a statement, We need to elect Kevin McCarthy as Speaker. 
In the meantime, I am focused on Iowans' priority, restoring fiscal responsibility, securing the border, unleashing American energy, and holding China accountable. Hinson Center DC and district offices in Iowa are fully operational and serving Iowans. Anyone who needs assistance with the federal government should reach out to our team. Fellow Iowa Republican U.S. Representative Randy Feenstra of Hull said, It's time to get to work to pass a conservative agenda. The delays only help Democrats obstruct our efforts to rein in wasteful spending, balance the budget, and fix our broken economy, Feenstra said in a statement. Iowa Republican Congressman-elect Zach Nunn echoed Hinson and Feenstra. He says, Our D.C. team is up and running, and the bulk of our staff is hired and already operating in Iowa, Nunn said, with three new district offices opened in Des Moines, Creston, and Ottumwa. My top priority remains serving our constituents across Iowa and delivering for our city and county communities, Nunn said in a statement. However, D.C., operates, however D.C. operates, we're going to keep working each day for Iowans. We will get to work as promised on lowering inflation, strengthening national security, gaining energy independence, and curbing expensive government overreach. Iowa U.S. Representative Marionette Miller-Meeks on Wednesday joined other Republican veterans at a news conference warning that the drawn-out fight over the speakership is damaging the chamber's national security oversight, preventing lawmakers from participating in classified briefings and meeting with top national security officials and delaying the work of the House Intelligence, Armed Services, and Foreign Affairs Committees. Until the Speaker is elected, University of Iowa graduate and U.S. House Clerk Cheryl Johnson currently presides over the House. A Louisiana native, Johnson graduated from the U of I in 1980, where she earned a degree in journalism and mass communication. She studied law at Howard University. She worked for the Smithsonian Institute for a decade as its director of government relations before becoming House Clerk. She was first sworn in as House Clerk by then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Democrat from California, in 2019 and again in 2021. Johnson also worked in various roles the U.S. House for nearly 20 years before joining the Smithsonian Institution, according to her biography. Along with the House Sergeant-at-Arms, she twice led House impeachment managers as they delivered articles of impeachment against Donald Trump to the Senate in 2020 and 2021. Representative French Hill, a Republican from Arkansas, praised and thanked Johnson on the House floor for her work presiding over the chamber amid the disarray of trying to choose the next speaker, sparking a standing ovation from House members. Our clerk has stepped up and reflects our House's best tradition of preparation and dedication to this institution, and we're grateful, Hill said. Moving along now, Brenna Bird sworn in as Attorney General. This comes from Caleb McCullough with uh, the Quad City Times. Dateline Des Moines, Brenna Bird, Iowa's new Attorney General, took the oath of office in the Capitol on Thursday, formally swearing in as the state's first Republican Attorney General since 1979. She was joined by Republican Governor Kim Reynolds and former Governor Terry Branstead, who praised her work as an attorney and in government. 
Bird was Branstead's chief legal counsel from 2011 to 2015, and she was previously chief of staff to, staff to U.S. Representative Steve King. Before becoming attorney general this week, Bird was most recently the Guthrie County attorney. She was sworn in by Iowa Supreme Court Chief Justice Susan Christensen. Speaking to the crowd gathered at the Capitol Thursday, Reynolds said Byrd stood out in Branstead's administration when Reynolds was lieutenant governor. On the 2022 campaign trail, Reynolds said she was again impressed by Byrd. As I watched her with Iowans, watching her sharing her vision for the attorney general's office and truly her passion to serve, it was clear that all these years later, the servant leader hasn't changed a bit, Reynolds said. The governor highlighted Byrd's campaign pledge to challenge President Joe Biden's administration. Reynolds said federal leaders have overstepped their bounds and Byrd will work to keep the federal government in check. We're all familiar with that defiant declaration on our state seal, our liberties we prize and our rights we will maintain, she said. The position of AG is one of the main tools the people of Iowa have that makes good on this promise. Byrd campaigned on a message of challenging Biden's administration and on Tuesday signed into a series of lawsuits against rules set by Biden and national Democratic lawmakers. The state was already a party to those suits, but former Democratic Attorney General Tom Miller did not attach his name to them. Byrd narrowly defeated Democrat Tom Miller in the November election, a victory that was marked by a large swing toward Republican statewide and heavy support from Reynolds. In her new role, Byrd said she was committed to upholding the state laws and the U.S. Constitution. I'm going to serve all Iowans, whether folks voted for me or not, she said Thursday. I'm here to work for everybody and serve everybody, she said. Miller attended the event and Byrd thanked him for aiding her team as she transitions into the office. Miller said in a statement last week he was thankful to Iowans for giving him a record-setting 40 years in office. We did it our way, he said. We never compromised on our values and principles. That is enormously satisfying to me. In addition to joining anti-Biden lawsuits, Byrd announced a top-down and bottom-up audit of the office's Victim Services Division. I am thankful to work with our prosecutors and law enforcement and crime victims uphold the Constitution, she said at the Capitol Thursday, just looking forward to getting back to work. The face of the day from the nonpareil is of Joe Shearer, and uh, his name is Dominic Kia. Joe Shearer is the writer of the article, and Dominic Kia, he says, is a ball of energy rolling into 2023. Kia, eight, is a Council Bluffs native and a second grader at St. Albert's Elementary School. He's been a Falcon since preschool, and he's having a great time. He is currently a student in teacher Abigail Hunter's classroom, and he said the first half of the school year has been good to him. Kia plays football, basketball, soccer, and baseball at St. Albert which keeps him quite busy all year long. It's a big commitment, but he says it's always great working alongside his friends and teammates. He said he wants to keep playing sports as he gets older, and he dreams of the days he'll hopefully be playing varsity sports in high school. Kia and his classmates recently got back into the classroom following winter break. He said it was really a good break, and he did plenty throughout the holidays. 
He visited Omaha's Henry Dorley Zoo and Aquarium, went ice skating, hung out at his aunt's house, and celebrated Christmas at his grandma's. It was loads of fun, but he said it's nice to be back at school. Kia was seen zooming around the elementary gym after school Wednesday during an after-school session of kids' care. He played dodgeball and basketball with his best bud, Asher Highhorse, and he was out of breath when approached for an interview with a nonpareil. He's been doing kids' care for a couple of years now, and he said it's a good way to be active and social before and after school. Kia's end to 2022 was full of great memories, and he plans to make a lot more in 2023. Taking a look at Council Bluff's five-day forecast, today milder with clouds and sun. The winds will be out of the east-southeast at 6 to 12 miles an hour, and the high in Council Bluffs today, 41. Overnight, partly cloudy, east-northeast winds at 17 miles per hour, and an overnight low of 18. Tomorrow, colder, a little afternoon snow, winds 7 to 14, a high tomorrow of 30, and an overnight low of 17. Then on Sunday, sunshine, winds out of the south at 6 to 12, and a high of 38, overnight low of 27. Monday and Tuesday look partly sunny, with a high on Monday of 43, and a high on Tuesday of 35. Turning to lifestyles and faith, stargazing, axial tilt blamed for colder temperatures. Something people might not realize is that yesterday at 10 a.m. we were closer to the sun than we will be on July 4th, which will find us in the middle of Midwest summertime. The temperatures over the past couple of weeks have really felt like wintertime in southwest Iowa, and I feel certain the warmth we usually get from the sun during spring and summer is something many, many residents are looking forward to. So you, as well as many others, might ask, if we're closer to the sun, why don't we feel the warmth? As I've written about, as the planet Earth moves in its orbit around the sun, it continues to maintain an axial tilt of 23.5 degrees relative to the plane of its orbit around the sun. Because of this tilted axis... The sunlight falling on us at this time of year is hitting us with a glancing blow, and the majority of that sunlight is being deflected back into space as opposed to striking us directly. Earth, as we know, moves in two distinct ways in space. Number one, in its rotating, it is rotating on its axis, and number two, it is steadily progressing in its yearly trip around the sun, which of course takes 365 days. Often these motions are difficult to understand and we just ignore them because we find it very hard to make ourselves believe that the sun, stars, planets, and other celestial objects are actually stationary while we are doing the moving. When Polish churchman Nicholas Copernicus presented his On the Resolution of the Celestial Spears, Spheres, it was immediately met with great hostility from the Catholic Church which held that God had created the universe with the earth at its heart. In his book, Pale Blue Dot, the late Carl Sagan wrote, What a beautiful sunset, we say, or I'm up before sunrise. No matter what the scientists allege, in everyday speech we often ignore their findings. But say you wanted your modern-day child home by sunset. Imagine how well it might be received using this Copernican speak. Billy, be home by the time the earth has rotated enough so as to occult the sun below the local horizon. Billy would probably be gone before you have even finished. 
we consider ourselves at the center of everything, and everything else circling us is actually built into our language, and we teach it to our children. Italian scientists Galileo Galilei in 1616 also professed that Earth was not the central portion of our universe, which immediately got him into a bunch of trouble with the church. It was in 1633 that the Roman Catholic Church condemned Galileo, saying, The doctrine that Earth is neither the center of the universe nor immovable, but moves even with a daily motion, is absurd, and both psychologically and theologically false, and at least an error in faith, he said, they said. You may find it hard to believe, but it took the church until 1832 to remove Galileo's work from its list of books that Catholics were forbidden to read at the risk of dire punishment of their, immort of their immortal souls. Wow, how, how we've changed. Moving on to lifestyles. At this point, actually, I'm going to tell you that you are listening to the Council Bluffs Nonpareil, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of, of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, John Kringle. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And today, there are no obituaries. So we go back to Lifestyles and My Pet World. And this was written by Kathy M. Rosenthal. And she says, the reader says, Dear Kathy, I am writing about our beloved 15-and-a-half-year-old cat who was diagnosed with hypotrophic cardiomyopathy in 2015. Over the past seven years, we have given him one quarter an Altenol pill twice a day and an aspirin every third day. Hi hiding the meds in his treats. Unfortunately, he's been giving us a tough time about the aspirin for the past few months. He sniffs the treats and refuses to take them, even going so far as turning up his nose at the treats containing the altenanol. The situation has stressed him and us out, so we decided a couple of weeks ago to stop giving him the aspirin. Is that a terrible decision? Does he really need it? He seems much happier now. He takes the other medication without any problems, so I wonder if the aspirin might have been upsetting his stomach. We also don't want to alienate him in his senior years. It's a quality of life issue. We would be grateful for your perspective. This comes from Stacy in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And Carol writes, Kathy writes, Dear Stacy, I'm not a veterinarian, so I couldn't tell you the health risks of his not taking the aspirin. But a 15-year-old cat's quality of life is certainly something to consider. When people are in hospice, they don't receive medication for their illness anymore. It's just palliative care. Certainly, you could do that if you felt your cat was at the end of his life. I would take him to your vet, though, to get checked out. Whatever there, whenever there are behavior changes, it could indicate a new health problem. The vet may recommend another medication or, at the very least, tell you what could happen to your cat as a result of discontinuing the aspirin. Then you can make an informed decision about how to care for your beloved kitty. Next letter, Dear Kathy, Thank you for your article on sedation before euthanasia. I had the same experience as L.L. in Riverdale, New York. 
My 20-year-old cat had gotten so weak that he would topple over and then look at me pleadingly for help to getting back on his feet. I decided it was time for euthanasia. I called my vet's office only to be told my regular vet had left the practice for a new location. Still, they had been lucky to get a wonderful vet out of retirement to take over. I made the appointment, trusting that they had found a caring vet who would follow the same procedure I expected from my regular vet. I was shocked when the vet came into the treatment room with his assistant, who grabbed my cat as the vet quickly did the injection. Ginger, my cat, screamed as I watched helplessly. Then the vet joked about how Ginger still had a lot of fight left in him. I couldn't believe what I had just witnessed, and still, after several years, relieved that hor- relived that horrible moment. From Carol in Tucson, Arizona. Dear Carol, I received many later letters about the end-of-life experience for pets. It's surprising how many people have had an experience similar to yours and mine. I have had two bad euthanasia experiences with my pets and now always make sure I have this discussion with my vets long before I need these services to make sure we are on the same wavelength. My hope is that by sharing these letters, other pet owners will begin having the same conversation. A vet should be able to explain how they handle euthanasia in their office and accommodate a pet owner's thoughts and wishes. If they can't accommodate a pet owner, then this gives the pet owner time to find a new vet. I believe most vets are sensitive to a pet owner's grief and will do whatever they can to make the procedure easier on the pet and their owner. But it's essential that pet owners ask these questions now while their pets are still healthy. And now here's a fun fact. What are the most popular dog and cat names for 2022? The list varies depending on the company surveying pet owners. But Trupanion, a pet health insurance company, scanned its database of over 800,000 pets and discovered the most popular names for 2022. The top dog names are Luna, Charlie, Bella, Daisy, Milo, Lucy, Cooper, Bailey, Teddy, and Max. Max has been in the top 10 list and number one on most lists for many years. He's a good boy. The top 10 cat names are Luna, Oliver, Loki, Milo, Leo, Bella, Charlie, Moki, Lily, and Willow. Four of the top 10 names, Luna, Charlie, Milo, and Bella, were on both lists. Moving on with more news. To the records, Biden builds judicial legacy. This was written by Laura Litvan, the Bloomberg News, and the dateline is Washington. President Joe Biden and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer are transforming the federal courts at a blistering pace and creating an unrivaled legacy of diversity that will redefine the federal bench for a generation. Of the 97 judges confirmed by the state in the last two years, Three-quarters of them are women, and nearly half of the appointees, including Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, are women of color. And while most presidents pick from a pool of existing judges, government attorneys, and lawyers in private practice, Biden cast a wider net. About one-third of Biden's confirmed judges have experience as public defenders, and a dozen are former civil rights lawyers, according to the liberal group Alliance for Justice. 
That means that there are more federal judges who have seen the challenges in the court system for people with low incomes or who have experienced civil rights or voting rights violations, said Lisa Seiler Barrett, director of policy at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. It's a perspective that has been sorely lacking and is much needed on the federal judiciary, Barrett said. Jackson, the 28 appellate court justices and 68 district court judges confirmed by the Senate in the last two years surpasses the 83 confirmed by this point in former President Donald Trump's term. It nearly matches the 100 judges confirmed during President George W. Bush's first two years in the Oval Office. Just five of Biden's appellate and district court judges are white men, 5% of the total so far. By comparison, 147 of Trump's nominees over his full four years in office were white males, or 64% of those he elevated. What's most striking to me is the paucity of white males, said Russell Wheeler, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute who has long tracked federal court confirmations. The number of white males could be counted on one hand, which is so different than all the other presidents. Aside from Jackson's historic ascension to the Supreme Court, another 11 black women have moved up onto the appellate court. Appellate court. Up until the Biden administration, only eight black women have ever served on the circuit courts. The drive to reshape the judiciary will take on more urgency in the next session of Congress when we Republicans take power in the House and legislation gets gridlocked. Senate Democrats now have a 50-50 majority but that shifts to 51-49 in January, giving them an outright majority on committees, enabling Judiciary Chair Dick Durbin to move nominees to the floor with more haste. Mike Davis, founder and president of the conservative Article 3 project, said Democrats and their allies are less interested in bringing more diversity to the courts than they are in selecting jurists who they believe will issue rulings more in line with their values. When Democrats crow about diversity, that's code for liberal judicial activists, Davis said. He said Democrats have been quick to oppose female and minority judicial nominees of GOP presidents if they thought they could issue conservative if they could issue conservative opinions. Biden's push to remake the, the federal bench comes without the running start afforded to Trump by Senate Republicans who held up President Barack Obama's court nominees during his last year in office. That left a Supreme Court position after Justice Antonin Scalia died, along with 86 district court vacancies and 17 circuit court vacancies for Trump to fill when he took office in January of 2017. Trump later filled two other Supreme Court vacancies after Justice Anthony Kennedy retired and Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, a level of high court turnover Biden may never experience. After Trump's picks of Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett were confirmed, the Supreme Court had a 6-3 conservative majority. That set the stage for more right-leaning rulings, like this year's decision overturning the constitutional right to an abortion. Trump also made big inroads with the appellate court, shifting the balance of power on the Florida-based 11th Circuit, the New York-based 2nd Circuit, and the Philadelphia-based 3rd Circuit. All three had a GOP majority when he left office. Biden has moved 
the Second Circuit back to a slight edge of Democratic nominees, Davis and Biden and Schumer could turn back the other two appellate courts. Continuing on with news from around the world, Ukraine is a crime scene. This comes from Michael Biesecker and Erica Kinnitz with the Associated Press and the Dateline of Kiev, Ukraine. Ten months into Russia's latest invasion of Ukraine, overwhelming evidence shows the Kremlin troops have waged war with disregard for international laws governing the treatment of civilians and conduct on the battlefield. Ukraine is investigating more than 58,000 potential Russian war crimes, killings, kidnappings, indiscriminate bombings, and sexual assaults. Reporting by the Associated Press and Frontline, recorded in a public database, independently verified more than 600 incidents that appear to violate the laws of war. Some of those attacks were massacres that killed dozens or hundreds of civilians, and as a totality, it could account for thousands of individual war crimes. As Kareem Khan, chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court in The Hague, told the AP, quote, Ukraine is a crime scene, end quote. That extensive documentation has run smack into a hard reality, however. While authorities have amassed a staggering amount of evidence, the conflict is among the most documented in human history. They are likely to arrest most of those who pulled the trigger or gave the beatings any time soon, let alone the commanders who gave the orders and political leaders who sanctioned the attacks. The reasons are manifold, experts say. Ukrainian authorities face serious challenges in gathering airtight evidence in a war zone. The vast majority of alleged war criminals evaded capture and are safely behind Russian lines. Even in successful prosecutions, the limits of justice so far are glaring. Take the case of Vadim Shishmarin, a 21-year-old tank commander who was the first Russian tried on war crimes charges. He surrendered in March and pleaded guilty in a Kiev courtroom in May to shooting a 62-year-old Ukrainian civilian in the head. The desire for some combination of justice and vengeance was palpable in that courtroom. Do you consider yourself a murderer? A woman shouted at the Russian as he stood with his head resting against the glass of the cage he was locked in. What about the man in the coffin? Came another, sharper voice. A third demanded the defense lawyer explain how he could fight for the Russian's freedom. The young soldier was first sentenced to life in prison, which was reduced to 15 years on appeal. Critics said the initial penalty was unduly harsh, given that he confessed to the crime, said he was following orders, and expressed remorse. Ukrainian prosecutors, however, have not been able to charge Shishamarin, commanders, or those who oversaw him. Since March, Ukraine has named more than 600 Russians, many of them high-ranking political and military officials, as suspects, including Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu. But so far, the most powerful have not fallen into Ukrainian custody. It would be terrible to find a scenario in which, in the end, you convict a few people of war crimes and crimes against humanity who are low-grade and mid-grade military types or military paramilitary types, but the top table gets off scot-free, said Philip Sands, a prominent British human rights lawyer. Throughout the war, Russian leaders have denied accusations of brutality. Moscow's UN ambassador, Vasily Nebenzia, said no civilians were tortured. 
nor killed in the Kiev suburbs of Buka, despite the meticulous documentation of the atrocities by the Associated Press, other journalists, and war crimes investigators there. Not a single local person has suffered from any violent action, he said, calling the photos and videos of bodies in the streets a crude forgery, staged by the Ukrainians, he said. Such statements are easily rebutted by Ukrainian and international authorities, human rights groups, and journalists who doc documented Russian barbarity since the Kremlin ordered the unprovoked invasion in February. Part of that effort, the AP and Frontline Database, called War Crimes Watch Ukraine, offers a contemporaneous catalog of the horrors of war. It is not a comprehensive accounting. AP and Frontline only included incidents that could be verified by photos, videos, or first-hand witness accounts. There are hundreds of reported incidents of political war crimes for which there was not enough publicly available evidence to independently confirm what happened. Still, the resulting database details 10 months of attacks that appear to violate the laws of war, including 93 attacks on schools, 36 where children were killed, and more than 200 direct attacks on civilians, including torture, the kidnapping and killing of civilians, and the desecration of dead bodies. Among Russia's targets, churches, cultural centers, hospitals, food facilities, and electrical infrastructure. The database catalogs how Russian utilized cluster bombs and other indiscriminate weapons in residential neighborhoods and to attack buildings housing civilians. An AP investigation revealed that Russia's bombing of a theater in Maripol, which was being used as a civilian shelter, likely killed more than 600 people. Another showed that in the first 30 days after the invasion, Russian forces struck and damaged 34 medical facilities, suggesting a, a pattern and intent. In our next story, migrant shelters try to help traumatized assault survivors. This comes from Giovanni, Giovanna Del Orto with the Associated Press from Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. Since, the begin, since he began volunteering two months ago for weekend shifts at a clinic in one of this border city's largest shelters, Dr. Brian Elmore has treated about 100 migrants for respiratory viruses and a handful of, or more for serious emergencies. But it's a problem he hasn't yet managed to address that worries him the most, the worsening trauma that so many migrants carry along the journeys north that often involve witnessing murders and suffering from kidnappings and sexual assaults. Most of our patients have symptoms of PTSD. I want to initiate a screening for every patient, said Elmore, an emergency medicine doctor at Clinica Hope. It was opened this fall by the Catholic nonprofit Hope Border Institute with help from Bishop Mark Seitz of El Paso, Texas, which borders Juarez. Doctors, social workers, shelter directors, clergy, and law enforcement say growing numbers of migrants suffer violence that amount to torture and are arriving at the U.S.-Mexican border in desperate need of trauma-informed medical and mental health treatment. But resources for this specialized care are so scarce and the network of shelters so overwhelmed by new arrivals and migrants who've been stuck for months by U.S. asylum policies that only the most severe cases can be handled. 
like a pregnant 13-year-old who fled gang rapes and so needs help with child care and middle school, said Zuri Reyes Barrero, a care manager in Arizona with the Center for Victims of Torture, who visited that girl when she gave birth. We get people at their most vulnerable. Some don't even realize that they're in the U.S. In the past six months, Reyes Barrero and a colleague helped about 100 migrants at the Catholic Community Services Casa Alitas, a shelter in Tucson, Arizona, that in December was receiving about 700 people daily released by U.S. authorities and coming from countries as distinct as Congo and Mexico. Each visit can take hours as the caseworker tries to build a rapport with migrants and empower them, Reyes Barrero said. Sarah Howell runs a, a clinical practice and a nonprofit treating migrant survivors of torture in Houston. When she visits patients in their new Texas communities, they routinely introduce relatives or neighbors who also need help with severe trauma. The estimated level of need is at least five times higher than we support, said Leonce Biana, director of U.S. Clinical Services for the Center for Victims of Torture, which operates clinics in Arizona, Georgia, and Minnesota. Most migrants are traumatized by what they left behind, as well as what they encountered en route, Biama said. They need first aid mental health, as well as long-term care that's even harder to arrange once they disperse from border area shelters to communities across the country, he added. Left untreated, trauma can escalate to where it necessitates psychiatric care instead of therapy and self-help, said Dylan Corbett, Hope Border Institute's executive director. <coughs> Pardon me. Jesuit Refugee Services USA, the U.S. branch of the Global Catholic Refugee Agency, is planning to ramp up mental health resources in the coming weeks in El Paso, said its director, Joan Rosenhauer. All along the border, the most staggering trend has been the increase in pregnant women and girls, some younger than 15, who are victims of assault and domestic violence. Volunteers and advocates are encountering so many of these survivors that they had to focus scarce legal, medical, and shelter resources on helping them, leaving hundreds of other victims of political violence and organized crime to fend for themselves. Service providers and migrants say the most dangerous spot on journeys is La Selva, the Darien Gap jungle separating Colombia from Panama, crossed by increasing numbers of Venezuelans, Cubans, and Haitians seeking safer lives in the United States. Natural perils only add to the risk of, area, of an area rife with bandits preying on migrants. Loretto Salgado was months into her flight from Cuba when she crossed the Darien. We saw many dead. We saw people who were robbed, people who were raped. We saw that, she said, her voice crackling in a, in a migrant shelter in El Paso. Asked about La Selva, some women just suck in their breath and only later reveal having saved their daughters by speeding them along and getting raped themselves or enduring strained relationships with her partners who were made to watch the assault, Howell said. I don't think it's the first rape that most women I've talked to have experienced, Howell said, but it's the most violent and the most shameful because it is in front of her people. Moving on to news from around the nation and world, the U.S. Congress stalemate grips the House. McCarthy again fails to win Speaker's gavel as GOP feud continues.
This comes from Lisa Mascaro and Fornisha Miri with the Associated Press, Dateline, Washington, D.C. Pressure mounting, divided Republicans left the Speaker chair for the U.S. House sitting empty for a third day Thursday as party leader Kevin McCarthy failed anew in, in an excruciating stream string of ballots to win enough GOP votes to seize the chamber's gavel. McCarthy lost in the 7th and 8th round of voting and launched a historic ninth ballot. With his supporters and foes seemingly stalemated, feelings of both boredom and desperation seemed increasingly evident. One McCarthy critic, Representative Matt Goetz of Florida, cast his vote for Donald Trump in a symbolic but pointed gesture. McCarthy could be seen talking one-on-one in whispered conversations in the House chamber and met earlier with colleagues determined to persuade Republican holdouts to end the paralyzing debate that is blighting his new GOP majority. Pardon me. We have good discussions, and I think everyone wants to find a solution, McCarthy told reporters shortly before the House gaveled in its third session. Despite endless talks, signs of concession, and a public spectacle unlike any other in recent political memory, the path ahead remained highly uncertain. What started as a political novelty the first time in 100 years a nominee had not won the gavel on the first vote has developed into a bitter Republican Party feud and deepening potential crisis. Democrat Hakeem Jeffries of New York was renominated by Democrats. He won the most votes on every ballot, but also remained short of a majority. Republican Party holdouts again put forward the name of Representative Byron Donalds of Florida, assuring the stalemate that increasingly carried undercurrents of race and politics would continue. Donalds, who is black, is seen as the emerging party leader and counterpoint to the Democratic leader Jeffries, who is the first black leader of a major political party in the U.S. Congress, on track himself to become speaker someday. For the eighth ballot, Republican Brian Mast of Florida, a veteran, appeared to wipe away a tear as he nominated McCarthy and insisted the California Republican was not like past GOP speakers who were derided by conservatives. Republican Andy Biggs, a past leader of the chamber's conservative Freedom Caucus, rose to again nominate Donalds. McCarthy is under growing pressure from restless Republicans and Democrats to find the votes he needs or step aside so the House can open fully and get on with the business of governing. But McCarthy's right-flank detractors appeared intent on waiting him out as long as it takes. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Nonpareil. We'll take one last quick look at the weather which tells us it's going to be windy the next couple of days, but highs in the mid-30s and lows in the low to mid to high teens. And again, my name is John Kringle. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. (laughs) 